Hello, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you are listening to Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hello, and welcome to this, the second episode of the Polit podcast, the podcast of political posits. So, yep, this is our second episode. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. Um, just a reminder that what I'm going to discuss today is on the blog page, which there should be a link to in the description below or to the side. Uh, please go check out the blog. There is more content there and references and citations for everything. So whenever I speak about a particular thinker or I give a particular quote, rest assured I have referenced and quoted and uh, uh, cited Sorry, uh, on the blog. Uh, alongside this, as I say, there is extra content there of all my blog posts that don't become podcast episodes. Uh, so, for example, this week I also did a blog on social media and the public space of appearance, which is cool. You should check that out. Um, today, what we're going to be discussing is the left. Generally speaking, uh, the left is a topic which normally sort of captivates my reading interests uh, mostly because of just the sheer number of different theorists and critical thinkers which stem from the left. And this allows for a number of different frameworks for analysing the world, uh, kind of like different binoculars or different spectacles that you can put on the world and think about it differently. But one of the things that's always uh, sort of captivated me is the question of left strategy. Uh, the person for this, without a doubt, is uh, Chantal Mouffe, uh, who is a professor at the University of Westminster, I still think. Um, and uh, she has a fantastic repertoire of publications dedicated to understanding actually how should the left move forward uh, in the collapse of uh, any kind of uh, sort of actually existing socialism or the collapse of uh, sort of the left-wing project as a whole. Uh, in the 20th century, which, as you know, we all know, ended in somewhat of a disaster. So what we're going to discuss today is on the attainability of an alternative, the left, neoliberalism and the chain of equivalence. As it stands, the hegemonic status quo of the neoliberal order stands virtually unopposed in Europe. Broadly speaking, Neoliberalism is a theory of political economic practices proposing that human well-being is achieved through liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms within an institutionalized framework underpinned by an ideological market logic of expansion, consolidation and deregulation. It's often associated as an ideology with Margaret Thatcher, uh, Hayek, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, interestingly, actually, as a, as a concept, uh, I, I know of very few individuals that deem themselves to be neoliberals. However, the phenomenon does exist. There are a number of books written on neoliberalism and sort of the contemporary politics of the time. I want to begin by saying it would be disingenuous if I were to admit that some of the greatest advances and benefits of living in the time that we do, are indebted to being formulated within the neoliberal framework. Neoliberalism has both politically and institutionally 
facilitated the incubation and ingrained reproduction of a certain logos that goes hand in hand with the uttermost revolutionary aspects of the capitalist spirit that on Karl Marx's terms sweep away long-fixed social relations, melt all that is solid into air, and turn all that is holy into the profane. So, for example, states which were yet to make the transition to even a minimal standard of institutional democracy did so with the spread of free market values. If you want a good book for this, I would absolutely recommend Robert K. Haynes' After Hegemony. Uh, or even our capability to communicate has excelled in but a few short decades beyond that yet achieved in our species' history. And now more individuals globally hold a semblance of civic rights and liberties than ever before. This can't be ignored, and I genuinely believe that a critique of neoliberalism should begin with articulating the benefits of that particular society, or, or at least the aspects of this formulation which have allowed humanity to progress, if we can believe in such linear notions of progression at all. That's still questionable in and of itself, but even so, you know, if there are benefits to neoliberalism, uh, those should be cited. So don't say that I don't give at least a little bit of balance before I critique. Nonetheless, neoliberalism has, with its proliferation and normalised ideological principles, reformulated a control over life that makes it perceivably impossible to overcome its numerous contradictions and flaws. So, as much as neoliberalism has created a, a freer world um, on this, in order to say that neoliberalism has created a freer world, freedom would have to be conceptualized through a prism of what Isaiah Berlin, the political theorist and intellectual historian, referred to as negative liberty, where freedom is freedom from interference. Okay? So as much as neoliberalism has created a freer world, free from interference, uh, it has led to an era of marketized consumer society in which all things, almost without exception, may be commodified on a market, leading to a world of disposability. We experience the disposability of a common world, illustrated in the contemporary ecological crisis, the disposability of our commodities, illustrated in the sheer number of landfill sites, and the overhyped consumerism of goods that we can observe annually on Black Friday, for example, the disposability of our labour, illustrated in the ability to reduce industries to superfluity, and as such those communities that spored and clustered to create a way of living through those industries. I'm, of course, thinking of, I don't know, the automotive industry um, in North um, uh, North America and, uh, you know, mining communities in Wales and Yorkshire and Lancashire, uh, which are now like ghost towns, or even in Cornwall as well. Yeah, and this is sort of all led alongside it to the disposability of welfareism, and this is perfectly illustrated in the austerity politics of the post-2008 financial crash epoch. Neoliberalism has brought an experience of life that is marred by contradiction. For instance, we experience a world in which one is less overtly dominated by the state apparatus than in the past, 
where technology permits horizontalist and disseminated communication capabilities through social media, and yet simultaneously our bodies and activity are surveilled by the state and those agents that provide our platforms of communication in the form of data harvesting, which, like all else, can be bought, sold, or utilised as any other commodity. And we really shouldn't forget that we live in a system whereby we are free of the state, but we're always surveilled by technology that totalitarian political police forces in the last century could have only have dreamt of in their wildest fantasies. <laughs> Globally, it has become apparent that a new form of what the uh, political thinker and philosopher Michel Foucault called into being as governmentality. And a new form of this governmentality exists. So governmentality being an art of government with the citizen body as its target, which forges a series of particular governmental apparatuses and legitimated epistemological frameworks to construct how we know what we know for the purpose of secured governmentalized administration of individual bodies. And what's more, as a result of the ideological market logic permeating through the surface of this mode of governmentality, we've become unable to break with what the late Mark Fisher in his Capitalist Realism discusses as the mass grasp of the capitalist imaginary, to the point at which even alternatives beyond the neoliberal capitalist system are perceived as unimaginable. In spite of this, as Fisher so beautifully contends, the oppressive pervasiveness of the situation means that even glimmers of alternative political and economic possibilities can have a disproportionately great effect. From a situation in which nothing can happen, suddenly anything is possible again. So over the course of the past two or three decades, the left has not necessarily seen to aid the phenomenon of this potentially messianic and quasi-theological deliverance into an alternative that Fisher opens our political discourse to survey and think in the name of. Indeed, with the collapse of the socialist era in the 1990s, that's in inverted commas, um, uh, the left in Europe chose not to engage in forging a genuine alternative to the neoliberal capitalist framework, but rather to reconstruct social democracy in its image, synergizing the neoliberal ideological hegemony with welfarist policy. I'd think of Tony Blair, Gerhard Schroeder, uh, François Hollande, uh, Romano Prodi, or even to a lesser extent perhaps, but still questionable, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, through this so-called third way, we fell into an era of the post-political or the post-democratic. Uh, some thinkers use those terms sort of interchangeably, some different. Uh, but in which the role of corporate interests and elites in the affairs of governance have greatly contributed to an entropy of democracy and democratic accountability. And as such, a genuine civil discourse, uh, a genuine politics, so to speak, to contemplate the potentiality of an alternative framework cannot be brought into being. This is part of the problem, which adds to sort of Fisher's conundrum that uh, within the capital within the neoliberal capitalist framework, it's become impossible to imagine an alternative, and in this, 
the left broadly, or at least the social democratic left, has seen its um, uh, task to be to synergize welfareism with neoliberalism. And this makes creating an alternative framework even more complicated. So the problem that the left face is this, i.e. how to conjure the terms from which an alternative, an escape out of the neoliberal frame, can be theorised. For the political theorist Chantal Mouffe, this can be achieved through the creation of a so-called left populism, engaging with the populist moment that we seem to have found ourselves in as a result of the dominance of the neoliberal hegemony. But preventing a right-wing dominance of such a moment to the extent that democracy is guarded from erosion and that an alternative frontier, a frontier that distinguishes between an inclusive construction of the people and all else, may be composed in an anti-hegemonic frame to combat the excesses of the neoliberal hegemony. This is interesting as she draws on her work with Ernesto Leclerc, um, uh, they, a book that they wrote together called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, whereby they expound the notion of the chain of equivalence. So we're going to discuss sort of the notion of the chain of equivalence now. But through an agonistic model of struggle, Muth maintains that marginalised and disadvantaged groups of society may assemble together to construct a thoroughly political strategy in order to undo the hegemony that limits their collective existence somehow. This is the chain of equivalence. This does not imply that the vast collection of subjectivities necessarily needs to wholly agree, but simply that the groups in the chain acknowledge that each holds their own distinct relations to the existing hegemony, and that each group's interests are irreducible and incomparable to others. In this, unity and assembly would come into being through the retainment of commonality in difference. So to break that down into sort of plain English, uh, they would see themselves as equivalently disadvantaged by existing power relations, but not identical in their experience of those relations, enabling them to act in concert and construct the potential opening for the alternative that Fisher speaks of. Chains of equivalence would incorporate the class dimension of past socialist thinking, but on a broader anti-essentialist scale that would disseminate the notion of a proletarian class beyond the cliché realm of industrialism alone. So capitalism always requires a working class, and as the forces and relations of production slowly evolve and mutate, so can too the social classes who have their existence limited in some way by the existing hegemony. Perhaps the invocation of chains of equivalence is what should be strived for, for the sake of its potentiality. Perhaps in this moment of connectivity, in this moment of unification through difference, in order to protest, in order to move and find an alternative from the neoliberal hegemony, sort of out of the neoliberal hegemony, um, an alternative can be thought and constructed. I do, however, see a handful of questionable issues with the pragmatics of reinforcing these chains of equivalence. I'm going to walk you through them now. The first concerns how to ensure the acknowledgement of equivalence from within. 
Muth and, Muth and Leclerc reveal that the logic of equivalence is itself both necessary for the chains themselves to arise, but are yet equally abstract and fully require a rearticulation and redefinition of political and social spaces. Therefore, if the logic of equivalence breaks under the retroactive hegemonic norms, these chains will subsequently break down. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit more. Uh, for example, uh, I'll put this in, in a, a form of a question. Can, traditional, can traditionalist religious minorities act in concert and form a common counter-hegemonic strategy with the LGBTQ plus community or the feminist movement, for example, when by virtue of their normative differences, these groups interpret the fabric of the political world on different terms, with different signifiers? Are some differences too essentialist that no abstract application of a logic of equivalence can overcome them? I again think that this is one of the biggest problems with the left is now that the left seems to have engaged in sort of morality and identity politics, um, which for me, uh, it's sad to say I do agree with, with the Zizekian notion on this, with Zizek's notion, that this is a sign of the need to find an alternative because there is nothing else to fight apart from perhaps, you know, the language of morality. Uh, this is one of the biggest problems, is how do you get two groups of people who are equally, um, uh, I don't want to use the word oppressed because that sounds cliche, but oppressed by a particular order, or are, you know, the subaltern of a particular hegemony. How do we, how do those individuals come together when one denies the existence of another or you know one defines the other as being uh, offensive or homophobic transphobic or you know racist xenophobic so on and so on how is that reconciled how is that circle squared although perhaps a different bind can be found the chains of uh, equivalence always require a bind uh, yeah so perhaps a different bind can be found beyond equivalence as in Judith Butler's The Force of Nonviolence, where grievability, uh, uh, this is, grievability is the recognition of the right to grieve for bodies that acknowledges and co-creates the idea of an inclusive livable life, could reinforce a notional quality as the basis of the chain. Um, so just to unpack this again, so Butler discusses the notion of grievability, whereby uh, uh, through grief, we could acknowledge lives that were livable lives, and in this sense, attach equal value to those lives as our own or those that we grieve for. And this can allow for a sense of commonality to manifest itself uh, and a formulation of unity between those subjectivities in that chain. Um, so I think... My, my, my biggest issue with this is that whether or not this would fall prey to a similar exceptionalism, requiring bodies to be acknowledged on a logic of equivalence to begin with in order to view all lives as primarily livable and thus grievable. If one doesn't acknowledge the lived existence of another, one can't even begin to go through the process of making that life a grievable life. Uh, equally, with the globalized network of deterritorialized communication, can such chains form across cultures, languages, and territories, 
even if we have the material and tangible capability to do so. So although some claim that social media can have an effect on encouraging popular assembly in its networkable existence, I'm thinking of Zeynep Tefeki here, um, if social media acts as a mirror of norms, would it equally disallow chains of equivalence to form between those who are equally disenabled from experiencing a life on their own terms as a result of the neoliberal hegemony? Would it fall back onto the same kind of conflicts between those who are uh, subjected or between those who are somehow experiencing a life that is not fulfilling their own potential because of the structure and sort of order of the neoliberal system. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, social media may allow connectivity, but can it permit a recognition of equivalence beyond localized and wholly subjective norms? I mean, one of the biggest questions is: can can a uh, a North American left even understand itself as a left in the same way that the European left understands itself as a left. Is there a space for reconciliation there? But generally, if the left seeks to truly provide the basis for an alternative, there are but just these are but just some of the questions it must ask itself. Either this, or I think perhaps return to the hermeneutic chalkboard of interpretation altogether, and follow uh, Zizek's reformulation of the 11th thesis on Feuerbach by Marx, uh, reversing the 11th thesis to argue that the philosophers have hitherto attempted to change the world. The point now, however, is to interpret it again. Whatever the case may be, the left must not forget what distinguishes itself. And this is its emancipatory position. So to finish... I'd just like to finish with some of the work with some of the words of uh, the late Mark Fisher, who, in his capitalist realism, I think distinguishes something that can unify the left, uh, which is his understanding of emancipatory politics. Emancipatory politics must always destroy the appearance of a natural order, must reveal what is presented as necessary and inevitable to be a mere contingency just as it must make what was previously deemed impossible seem attainable. And that is the task of the left, really, to try and find an attainable alternative. And just as anybody who has ever been in an escape room knows, sometimes in order to gain progress or to, to gain success and outcome, one requires to throw oneself into hopelessness and look in the strangest of places for the answers. Thank you very much. And please, as I say, go on the website to find more content, citations and references. Thank you very much for listening.